0: Welcome back to That Wasn't In My Textbook, our bi podcast that helps us uncover the things we always wish we learned from that boring, bulky textbook. I'm your host, Toya, and you're now listening to episode six on the History of Libraries. Today we are talking about libraries, okay? I'm not going to try to age myself here, but you know, traditionally libraries is used to be like a place that you would take a field trip to if you're like in elementary school, high school, and you know, even in college, you might have a, like a little library research kind of class. And so um, it's a physical place that we would go to. You might have like a library and give you a tour, sit you down and show you how to use their computers and their different search databases to figure out how to look up books, how to search books based on that weird decimal system that we'll talk about. Um, And you might even sit down and learn how to like do special tricks and tips for doing research in a database like how to look up different keywords and stuff like that. So that's what we're talking about today. We're talking about that place, that library. And today's episode is inspired by so many things. Like, did you know that there are 17,000 libraries in the US alone? Did you know that? Yes, the good news is that there are more public libraries, 17,000, right, in America than there are McDonald's franchises, which is at a number of 14,000, and the same is true of Starbucks. I know, like, especially for me, like, growing up and living in Harlem and experiencing gentrification, I felt like there was a point in New York where there was just Starbucks popping up, like, every other day, Starbucks, Starbucks Express, blah, 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 blah. But the good news is that there are more public libraries than Starbucks, which is like, that's refreshing. That's good to know, you know? And Starbucks, there's about 11,000 Starbucks coffee shops nationwide. So. Yeah, there's a lot of libraries in this world, which I think shows that at one point they were very, very significant. So that's one reason why we are talking about libraries today, because there are a lot of them, and they show they have a very significant historical experience. Um, they've been a place of knowledge and you know community for a while. So we're going to talk about that. The second inspiration for this episode is just kind of like a lot of the debates that's been going around about the existence of libraries, of whether or not we still need them to this day. So that debate started way before COVID-19. Um, many people were questioning the future of libraries, especially now that you can just, you know, get a book like that, you know? Amazon Prime is deliver you your own non-fresh new book, um, two days in two days for delivery. And the fact that like now we have computers in our home, we have a lot of access to databases on our home in our homes. So, you know, a lot of people have been wondering like as technology has evolved, do we need, you know, libraries in the traditional physical sense? And you know, now that we are experiencing this pandemic, A lot of people are, like, wondering if they really want to borrow a book that may contain someone else's cooties. You know what I'm saying? Um, Obviously, borrowing a book kind of brings down the wasting of trees and printing, right? So it has benefits. But now with the pandemic, a lot of people are not really looking into that experience, so um, those are the two things that have inspired this episode. And as a nerd, I love libraries. Um, and during this pandemic, I've even signed up for an L.A. library card electronically. And I've been using some of their services. Now, just so y'all know, this is not a uh, sponsored <laughs> podcast by libraries, although that would be very fitting. That'd be very on brand for, you know, that wasn't in my textbook. But they're not sponsoring it. But I have been using the library. They have this really cool ask the librarian feature that allows you to chat or email a librarian. And for like my first episode on Juneteenth, I believe I like sent an email to a librarian who sent me a whole bunch of links and um, databases that I could find more information with. So I thought that was really cool. And, um, you know, through the L.A. library, and I think through a lot of libraries, I know the New York City Library, um, it is true, you also have access to, like, really cool online resources, like lynda.com that has, like, free, like, online skill courses so if you want to learn Photoshop, if you want to learn podcasting, like you can basically take a course through Linda. And that's pretty expensive if you buy it as an individual. But through the library it's free. And what else did I use the library? I've used Lynda.com and all other different types of stuff. Oh, you can even access the New York Times through the library. Cause you know the New York Times trying to make you pay for, for articles and I get it. But yeah, it's not happening right now. So those are some resources for you if you haven't um and you're still quarantined i don't know what's going on everyone has in different phases you might want to check out just like some of the features of your library through just like online they're pretty they're pretty dope this week i'm excited because i'm joined by janine giles a librarian an educator a doula a mother All the hyphens you can think of, all the dope hyphens you can think of, she kind of has them going on. I met her at an L.A. book club event here and I started following her online and I found out that she was a dope black librarian. And I don't know any librarians and I feel like you need to have a librarian in your back pocket I even told her about my podcast idea and she also helped me um, with some resources. She sent me some for the history of curating episode which was really helpful. And then as someone who's just been following her online, she's been sharing some really um, dope, mind-blowing things that like only an archivist slash librarian I feel like would point out to you. For example, Earth Day, She did a really cool like IGTV um, segment on how, you know, our digital footprint. So things like our Google drives and our iClouds I are really not good for the environment. The places that these informations are physically stored, the servers and the energy that these servers are are using and the toxins that they're emitting into the energy are not good and i never even thought about that you know so it was really interesting to see and i knew once i started this podcast that i needed to talk to her about being a librarian what that journey was especially as a black woman so that's what we talk about in this episode we talk about how libraries got started the history of libraries, especially for black folks, because, you know, they tried to keep us out, Um, racism in the library systems and the cataloging systems. And then, of course, we talk about, you know, that debate around whether libraries play an important role in our society today with so much stuff, you know, at our fingertips and Amazon Prime and computers in our homes. So we talk about that and, like, what the future of libraries could and should look like before we jump into the interview where we discuss all things libraries in particularly the future of libraries and how to become a librarian the different types of librarians because they're different types guys I learned that in this interview um, let's talk about some history let's learn some important things around how libraries all got started now you know We always start with a definition. So my definition, Toya's definition of libraries is like a physical place, a physical building that houses a collection of books. Sometimes it's music, sometimes it's manuscripts in one place that are not for sale, but oftentimes for lending. And according to Webster, the official dictionary, right, a library is a place in which literary, musical, artistic or reference materials such as books, manuscripts, recordings or films are kept for use, but not for sale. Boom. So that is the definition of libraries. Now, the role of libraries has always been about community, social and civic and symbolic kind of like infrastructure kind of thing. But like a lot of things in the U.S., it's been a representation representation of knowledge and power and racism. <clears throat> and we're going to talk about that today. So the, the idea of the modern library, which is like the idea of going to a library and taking things out and lending them and bringing them back – started in the 19th century, so like the 1800s, right? But libraries have been around since ancient times, since a long, long time ago, just not in the modern sense of lending books. It was more like you go to the library, you can look at some stuff like, (laughs) and then you can go. And so the oldest library, the world's first library is believed to be located in Morocco which is Africa, by the way, guys. Um, and that was 895 CE. That just means a long time ago. Don't ask me any other details about that. And it was a part of the al University. I also believed I butchered that. Anyway, back then, that library in Morocco had about a half a million scrolls, um, and scholars would come and study, you know, the collections on history, math, you know, laws, religion, and stuff like that, but you couldn't take things out. Remember, it wasn't like the modern day library. Like during these times, the books were chained to the desk, kind of like when you go to the bank and pens are chained to the desk, right? Because they don't want you taking the pens that's how it was back then the early forms of libraries you couldn't really take things out a lot of them also were a little elitist like you kind of had to know somebody it wasn't necessarily always open to the public like the traditional libraries and so you know libraries also were kind of like this thing that different empires in Europe and stuff like that would make and yet as they conquered people they would steal things collect them and build libraries and it was kind of like a way to show your enemies like oh I'm smart and look at this big monumental building that I've built in the center of my city because we're about knowledge and a lot of the libraries had a lot of religious texts. You got to remember a lot of people were super duper religious um, and religion was kind of like established during these periods. And then they also had a lot of like math, law, and history because that's what was like the focus of those centuries, right? But, you know, we don't skip ahead to the modern definition of libraries based in the U.S. And so following the ancient worlds, you get kind of like the more modern library in the 19th century, right, in the U.S., But let's talk about some of the things that were in the colonies before before we got into the modern definition. So our founding fathers, colonizers like Benjamin Franklin, and a couple of U.S. citizens in the U.S. got together to form the Library Company of Philadelphia, which is considered one of the first successful public lending libraries in the colonies, right? Um, and they kind of worked like companies, like those joint stock companies where everyone like pulls in their money, um, and their resources. And they use that money to buy books from Europe that came on ships, right? To the colonies. And, um, each member had a subscription, a paid subscription to be a part of it. And for the, um, library company of philadelphia They were about 50 members and so this allowed them to kind of check out a book and bring it home read it and return it um of course you had to be a member so this wasn't fully public right and so this structure by the library company of philadelphia was considered the first successful lending library in the colonies Um, And that was like the 1730s, right? And then there was also the Library of Congress, which we still have today, which is considered one of the largest libraries in the world. It's located in D.C. It started in the 1800s by another white colonizer, um, John Adams. And it was burned down in 1812 by the British um, and destroyed, but it was brought back, and it was bigger than ever. And, you know, people like Thomas Jefferson donated books to the new to reviving the new library if it was burned down and all that other stuff. So, yeah, the Library of Congress, which we still have today, the largest library that you can also access online. You should check it out. They have some really great resources. So those are kind of like the two libraries that you should know in the U.S. like that were very significant in history right but then with the introduction of mass printing entering the game right now they're printing hundreds and thousands of books at the same damn time uh that's when we start seeing our modern day version of libraries where you can borrow books and you don't have to be a member so with mass printing on the scene lending libraries started to go on the rise and libraries transformed from this Bougie members only BS to a place open to the general public, except for black folks, and we gonna talk about that. Um, in America, stateside, <laughs> public 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 libraries really popped off, and were funded by taxes and private donations by folks like Andrew Carnegie, and he was a rich white philanthropist guy who spent a lot of his money his riches on helping funding libraries about 1689 libraries to be um, specific uh, in the US plus others around the world in places like Australia South Africa um, just to name a few and in the end I believe that Andrew funded about two thousand five hundred libraries between eighteen eighty three and nineteen twenty nine Okay, Andrew, look at you spending money this was and so this was around the twentieth century. Um you know, there's libraries popping up more libraries than Starbucks that we see today. So, you know, in the United States, especially in the South, there were segregation laws. And so libraries became places for white folks only. And black folks were not allowed into these public spaces, which is crazy. And then there's things like the Supreme Court case of Plessy versus Ferguson, which was about integrating and particularly like train cars and other public spaces that the that kind of also changed the game. So that court case, um, Plessy v. Ferguson, ended with the ended with the phrase "separate but equal." So it upheld segregation, and the idea that everything is separate but things are equal, right? And this t- was used to justify the segregation of public spaces like schools and libraries. But we already know that, like you know, these places were underfunded like the black schools and the libraries were underfunded and therefore inferior to the to the things that you know the schools and libraries and other things that that white people had. So it was just kinda like some straight up bull. Folks and so black folks really weren't having it. And there's a long history of, you know, black folks doing read-ins in libraries and, you know, black librarians really taking over um and trying to make sure that black history is included in libraries, you know, on the shelves of libraries. So first, as early as 1902, Carnegie funded, you know, the library in Atlanta and W.E.D. Du Bois, who was, you know, the professor of Atlanta University at the time, you know, a strong activist in, you know, the black community was just like, what? He protested it because he was like, how are you going to have a library in Atlanta, in hot Atlanta and refuse service to a third of Atlanta's population, the black population, right? A third of the black the a third of the population in Atlanta was black, and they were refusing to allow black folks to go to the library. Unfortunately, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois and the other activists that were involved in protesting the Atlanta Public Library lost. Um, so they didn't they didn't succeed in getting integration. But in 1905, you know, three years later, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, They opened up their first free public library for African-American readers, staffed by black folks, entirely operated by black folks. And later on, Atlanta did get their first library branch for blacks, but it wouldn't open until 1921, which is about 20 years after, you know, the Atlanta library was created. And W.E. Du Bois was like, nah, what you doing, you know? So libraries were just kind of really racist and they didn't really, you know, include black folks physically. They didn't let them in physically. And then in their book category system that was invented by Meville Dewey, right? The Dewey Decimal System is what it's called, was hella racist too. Um, Meville Dewey, who founded the Dewey Decimal System, the category for organizing books in the library that have like, One, two, three, point, four, five, six, point, A, B. You know, that system that we still use today was created by him. He was known as the one-man Silicon Valley. And he was not only racist, but sexist as well he eventually got himself kicked out of the American Library Association that he co-founded because of his offensive behavior towards women. The system was based on his belief that everyone has a place in society in which he believed that white men were at the top. He also did advocate for women librarians because he thought it was suitable work for college-educated for college educated women that would keep them out of the public sphere. But he did believe that once women started a family, they would quit. All his classifications were extremely Eurocentric. It was all about Europe. It was all about white people. Um, And so a lot of librarians, and particularly black librarians, were constantly attempting to update and change part of Dewey's decimal system, which leads us to Dorothy Porter. Dorothy Porter graduated from Howard University and was the first black woman to graduate from Columbia's library school. She dedicated her career to unspooling racism in the Dewey Decimal System. She recognized that people classifying books had a lot of power, right, in framing the structure of the world, in framing history, right, and how we understand who's in power, how we understand different cultures. So she spent a lot of her time transforming this racist framework. And she wrote a lot of bios for different black authors because they didn't really exist. She really worked on decolonizing libraries, not just the spaces, but the, the books and the resources that were in there because there were limited resources about black culture, about black history um, in and out of America. And so her work is considered critical. Another important desegregation effort in libraries that we should all know is about the Toodaloo Nine. So on March 27th, 1961, Joseph Jackson Jr. walked into the Jackson Public Library in Mississippi and attempted to check out a book that was not available in the Black-only library. And he was there with, you know, eight of his other homies, and they were all a part of the NAACP Youth Council, but they were known as the Toodaloo Nine because, you remember, it was Joseph and his eight homies. So we got nine people. So when they did this um, in the white-only library, they ended up getting arrested. I mean, can you imagine getting arrested for trying to check out a book? Anyway, they were jailed and arrested and a year later, that same library, the Jackson Public Library, was desegregated. So, those are just, you know, um, three examples of how black folks really created a way for themselves, right, in another white space that was not welcoming or created for us. So we did read-ins, and then we also had librarians like Dorothy Porter changing the systems and the infrastructure of libraries to make sure that black folks were included. So let's do a quick little summary of what we learned before we get into the interview. So first, libraries have been around for a long time, since ancient times. I don't know where that accent came from. The oldest library in the world is located in Morocco. The first successful semi-lending library was the Library Company of Philadelphia. Remember, it was members only. Right, today there are 17 thousand libraries in the United States. Andrew Carnegie spent a lot of his fortune, a lot of his dough on building libraries in the US and worldwide about 2500 libraries. The Supreme Court case of Plessy versus Ferguson that ended with the conclusion that things are separate but equal, was used to justify segregating libraries. But we know that they were not equal. The black-only libraries were underfunded and didn't have the same resources as the white libraries. Libraries continued to deny access to black folks through the 20th century W.E.B. Du Bois fought against library segregation, especially in the ATL. He lost. The Toodaloo Nine did a read-in on March 1961 in the Jackson Public Library. They got arrested for checking out a book, but a year later, the library was desegregated. The Dewey Decimal System, the library book category system that we still use today, was racist as fuck. Dewey was racist and a sexist asshole. Yeah, I said it. Um, black librarians like Dorothy Porter created systems to recategorize the Dewey system. Thank God for her. Thank goodness. Thank goodness for her. Um, And libraries are often viewed as these like civilizing missions in America where white men, also, you know, libraries have been a place of knowledge and power, and initially, libraries were viewed as a civilizing mission in America with white men bringing knowledge and literacy to the masses. So now that we've gone over the history of libraries, let's jump into the interview with a dope black librarian who's going to put us onto a lot of different things. All right. So I'm so excited to have Jahan Giles with us here today. She's an educator, a librarian, an archivist, and she's joining us. I'm going to let you introduce yourself because I know you do okay and then we'll get into the questions and talking about the future and the history of libraries mixed in together.
1: Yeah, I'm Jahan Giles. Um, I am an educator and a librarian. I'm an artist. Um, I'm a doula. I like to bring together and synthesize all of those elements by encouraging um, pregnant people to look within their family histories and their family historical memory and archives for answers instead of Um, internet databases and internet search engines. Um, And I work in a middle school. I um, have been a middle school educator for about 13 years um, in history and reading
0: and library services. Yes, and she has a beautiful family. (laughs) I'll just add that. that that. Um, Yeah, so I am so happy to have you because, you know, I follow you on the gram and I love all of kind of like the information that you share. And I think libraries and librarians are something that are like very overlooked, especially during this time with like the internet and everything. But um, I think it's important to talk about their place, especially for like people of color and also the future of libraries. Um, So what is your definition? Let's start out with the basics. Like what is your definition of a library?
1: So a library is an information system um, and it's designed to support researchers and searchers um, with the help of experts who are skilled at organizing and interpreting different information. Um, Yeah, because libraries can exist in a physical space, but They can also exist in a digital space and they can exist privately within people's homes. Mm -hmm. So this is just a collection of information. It's not always books. Um, Sometimes it's paper, sometimes it's collected oral histories, and sometimes it's art. So it depends on the purpose of the library. And then how would you define a librarian? So a librarian is somebody who is skilled at organizing and interpreting information. Um, and, and I can talk later about like the different types of librarians, but mm-hmm. a librarian is just somebody who has the skills and who has practiced in making sure the information is organized properly so that people can ex- access it, it's like it has to be accessible for people to engage with. Um, and then also help people interpret information because people might find information and not realize how it is relevant to them or to their field without the help of a librarian.
0: Yeah that makes sense I mean and I think like when I looked up some definitions of libraries it's like a physical room or a space but I like that you said it's like it's a collection and it can be digital it can be in your homes like people have like personal library connections collections which is like a personal goal of mine you know i want like one of those libraries with a ladder with the bookshelves to the ceiling and a ladder across like you know <laughs> I, got a, I got a whole pinterest board just of dream libraries home libraries <laughs> with my own decimal organization system yeah. <laughs> so did you learn about libraries in school like was that something in your textbook at all? So
1: when I was in uh, my school, my elementary school was designed in the 70s. And so both in my elementary school and my high school, there were no walls. And I went to uh, school in St. Louis, Missouri, and I went to Hazelwood East. And as I was leaving, they built walls. So it was like this open community, 70s hippies vibe. I love it. (laughs) In the middle of my elementary school, there was this big open library, and all of the classrooms surrounded the library, and there were no walls, so you could just see everything, you could see everybody. I don't know how we did it, but (laughs) I really don't, but um, I was always drawn to libraries, and I don't think that I learned the history of libraries. I tried to have conversations with, like, my school librarians and public librarians, and so they made it um, apparent to me that it was a specific academic trajectory that you had to go on to become a librarian. So I was aware that if you wanted to be a librarian, you had to go to library school is Mm -hmm. how they um, described it to me. So I didn't learn the history of libraries until I was pursuing my master's in library science. And that's when I learned like the history of libraries and libraries and librarians as like the first socialist of the country the first Mm -hmm. people who wanted to make sure that people had access to information Um, and also some of the first racist institutions that were purposefully trying to hide information from people Mm -hmm. so I didn't learn that until library school
0: what do you think are some important like parts of this topic like library librarians that should be included in like textbooks especially you know your middle school teacher like do you think there's elements that should be kind of Put in some middle school textbooks or like any kind of information in the educational system outside of just going to library school?
1: Yes. So I think most people, um, if they have a school library, They do have a time in their class, like elementary school, where they go to the library and like Mm -hmm. library, like teach them how to engage in the library and how to interact with the library. And my students have um, a class that teaches them how to like research and how to. They only meet every other day, Mm -hmm. and so we teach them how to interact with the library. And I think that the history of libraries should be taught, even if you. Our teacher who doesn't have access to a school library, because when you are teaching history and other information, it's important to note that a lot of this information comes from archives and comes from information that is housed in libraries. And so um, historians would not be able to access information if they did not first gather it from a library or from an archive. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about like the biases that historians bring into their work, it's important to note that some of these five Cs might be solidified by the information that is available to them in the libraries, And some of them might not have had um, like the work of working alongside archivists and working alongside librarians. And um, recently I've been looking through some of the like, archives that house information related to reconstruction And a lot of librarians that are going into some of those archives now and editing that information because there was history that was purposefully just left blank, or there was information that was purposefully left out because people knew the power of. The information if people were to get their hands on it. And so they knew that if this information were to be included in history books, um, organizations like the Daughters of the Confederacy and other racist organizations knew that if the original information was available to people, then people would be really upset. People would be really upset to learn that, you know, their ancestors were rebelling their ancestors bought their own freedom their ancestors were a part of a movement and so information was just just not said it might be in the footnote or it might be in the papers but when you go into a database now to search it you would never know that it existed unless a librarian went into the archives and edited that information.
0: Yeah and I think that's just like really powerful in my research is finding out like how like the even the decimal system you know was purposely created to eliminate whole histories of people of color and how that you know just was a part of the system for so long and then there was also a lot of black librarians who dedicated their work to read you know, including us and even like going against those decimal systems. So can you talk a little bit more about some of those biases that are in libraries that we don't know? Because I remember like when you were talking about, you know, do you learn about libraries in school? And I was like, yeah, I do remember, especially like, I think it was middle school, like going to a library and they're talking about primary sources and secondary sources. And at the time there were computers and they were showing you how to like do searches in the library and the decimal system and being like, okay, your book is in, the 325.16, you know, and then you have to go look at it. And I never really looked into that and understood what it really meant. And I never really understood that there were biases in that. So I think that that's something that people would be really interested in knowing in the Dewey system. Like, what are some of those biases? Um, If you can talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, I think that a lot of times we like to talk about the creator of the Dewey system without acknowledging that, there are individual librarians who still uphold these systems, mm. and there are metadata activists. Metadata is the information that you would search for. So if you were going into a car catalog, most of us don't have like card catalogs; it's all online. Yeah, so that information is called metadata, and there are people who identify as metadata activists who Ooh. are like dil- diligently working towards like changing that information so that um racist terms are. Of- are being changed, information about um, specific groups of people are being And one of the first librarians um, was Dorothy Porter Wesley. She worked at Howard Mm -hmm. And, and even in Howard's library because they were going with the Dewey system, all of the information about black people was in the same place as slavery and you still see this today in bookstores, like you're going to bookstores. I know, for example, the Barnes and Noble on Court Street in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. I was so upset because I was like making this video. I was so upset. I went there. Um, I typically don't go to large um, library corporations. Which, yeah. mm-hmm. I typically use like indie bookstores. So I can't remember why I went there. I think somebody might have given me a gift card. And all of the literature about Black people was in just one section, and most of it was behind the counter, so you couldn't even engage with the text. And so Dorothy Porter Wesley, like this was in the you know, 40s and um, af- right after the Harlem Renaissance, that she made sure to integrate all of the stories about Black people within their correct system. If I'm reading you know, Bluest Eye, and this is a coming of age novel, Yeah. Um, by Toni Morrison, it should not be next to the slavery narratives. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. That should be in the coming of age novels. It should be next to um, what's the coming of age novels that most people like Catcher in the Rye. Catcher in the Rye Mm -hmm. and the one with Scout uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, those should be next to each other. Like those are all coming of age novels um, that discuss what it is like to be a young person growing up in America. Yes, they have very different, you know, perspectives, but they have the same, you know, type of classification. And Mm -hmm. so um, additionally, um, as people who identify with the LGBTQ community, the stories about their uplift and about their overcoming of the struggles are listed right before pedophilia. And so we know that that is an outdated term, like outdated way to classify people. We know that medically, that's how people were trying to classify people who identified as LGBTQ community, but it does not make sense to still have those items next to each other in 2020. And so I think in, Per, like in individual libraries, I think that a lot of librarians are personally moving towards making sure that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But structurally, I think that there should be more work done so that people, one, are aware of it. So even if they are coming into it, for example, if you're coming into your public library and you notice that there's a section that's like African American interests and it doesn't really, none of the stories are aligned, none of the stories relate. Um, then you might want to ask them, like, why are you segregating these stories? Like, mm-hmm. why Why is this, you know, right here? Why can't our stories exist where they exist among all of the other stories?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, like you said, like, segregating history, and even, like, the history of the segregation of libraries was is, like, another you know, topic where like, you know, segregation continues. It's like they try to keep people of color out of the physical libraries and they also try to keep their history out of the physical libraries. It's like a continuation of separatism. So it's just kind of disheartening, but also not really shocking at the same time. What do you believe is the role as a librarian, like all librarians to preserve, you know, LGBTQ and Black, people indigenous peoples like history what do you think the role of and the responsibility I think of librarians are for that
1: so I think that our role um, as I said like our duty is to organize and interpret information Um, I think it's also to highlight certain stories and so in preservation it means that we need to go into like the cataloging system and update the metadata as terms are being updated like the same ways that we would use to describe ourselves like um, very few people say negro still so Mm -hmm. we need to go and make sure that anything that says negro like if it says um updating so then when people are looking for information even if it's in the title that the information the search words that would allow it to come up say Black and say African-American so yeah. that they're expanded to include the ways people see each other. And the same within the LGBTQ community is making sure that all of the vocabulary is consistently updated um, and knowing that it's going to change, like the ways in which the people describe themselves is always changing. And I think our role as a librarian is to ensure that no history is lost and that all of the information that is available to help people can always be available to them by us updating the vocabulary, updating the term, and then highlighting, specifically um, doing programming to highlight the works of, um, I think you said, it's like underrepresented stories and to make sure that people are aware and have access to these underrepresented stories. So I think that can look a lot of different ways. It's like when people are coming into a physical space um, and they are looking for a specific type of source to broaden their imagination and broaden what they expect to find from a source and include information from authors or researchers that are Black and LGBTQ. and know that the contributions that these people made are just as valuable as um you know white cis hetero folks and so when people are asking us as librarians for information make sure that we are bringing a diverse body of research to people
0: yeah i mean i think that librarians are amazing like you know i think like any type of researchers so, you know, like, and I think like you make a good point of just like the role of highlighting other stories, because even the, this conversation is making me think about like all the research I've done and like history papers and the struggles I used to have in finding, you know, resources and, then the, and also the search terms that I would have to use to find resources when you're saying like things are being updated. And I even just read like yesterday that um, a woman, a black woman like, emailed, like, Webster Dictionary and asked them to update the definition of racism um, to include systematic racism. And just, like, little things like that, like, those type of updates are important. And those type of, like, the wording and the research terms are important for people's, under other people's understanding so that not only the people who experience, you know, the new term can be, like, this is what it is, but also, like, other people who are trying to learn can be like, oh, racism is not, it's systematic. It's not just about like prejudice, you know? And like, it goes beyond that. So- yeah she was
1: a young person from Missouri and so I think that young people should know that they have that power and Mm -hmm. if they are you know in their school libraries or their university libraries you know at any state and they notice that something isn't correct for example recently in our school library we just updated anything that said illegal alien to Mm -hmm. undocumented immigrant and I think that if there are any students who notice this like you can go to your librarian that's something you can do like as a patron you can go to your librarian and say hey I think that these terms need to be updated because you know this is really racist and really harmful and when i search with different terms different information is coming up and that shouldn't be the case and i think most librarians will be receptive to that and will change that and so you can be you know a metadata activist too <laughs> as a researcher to ask librarians to update their
0: information yeah and um Yeah, I thought that was amazing. And I like the term meta activist, because I feel like that is, you know, could you talk a little bit more about that? And then I know you also mentioned earlier, like, there are different types of librarians. So if you could also go into that, and I guess what kind of librarian you identify as.
1: Yeah, I wrote that down. Huh? So a <laughs> metadata activist is just any librarian who sees that there is a need for search terms to be updated mm-hmm. and then can take it upon themselves to do, Look, it's tedious to go in and change all of those words, but they take it upon themselves to go in and make sure that everything is updated or to make sure that everything is um, included in the ways in which we identify it now. Uh Um, So I think anybody can do that work and um, there are some like websites of organizations where people who are doing this, but mostly it's just a call to action for anybody who is in the work to ensure that um, we're not being outdated and we want to stay relevant. Mm and I think that can be across the board, any librarian. So there are like different types of librarians, public librarians. Um, I know some public librarians whose background is actually in social work. So their bachelor's mm-hmm. degree is in social work. And then they now work in public librarians and provide social services. And mm-hmm. so that can look a lot of different ways.
0: Drink some water
1: too. <laughs> We know that, um, People who are houseless can spend time in libraries during the day to find jobs and find health care, find resources that can help them to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, There are also some libraries in Ohio that do provide housing. So at the end of the day, like when the library um, is closed, they provide housing, they provide um, access to showers and they provide access to daily needs. And those librarians have backgrounds in social work. and then there are law librarians. So right now there is a high need. I see a posted like l- posting, listing for different um, law organizations to find librarians and medical librarians. And in law librarians, they would make sure that the research that lawyers are using to fight for their cases um, is accurate and that they have as much robust research as possible um, to make their case. Wow. And medical librarians right now in COVID 19 are like going through historical. (laughs) Yes, I I see a listing every day like a medical librarian needed because, um, you know, medical researchers, doctors, and nurses are looking for ways to um, help people cope with COVID 19. They're looking for ways that, you know, to make a vaccine. And so all, uh, all of those librarians are looking through old cases are like combing through all of the old research to see which of that research would help their case. Mm-hmm.
0: And then what type of librarian do you identify as? I
1: am, I'm a school librarian, um, during the day. And I'm a digital librarian by night, mm-hmm. uh, so I work in schools, but then also, um, I work with communities that have been affected by uh, climate catastrophe and, mm-hmm. um, climate racism. And have lost archives due to um, hurricanes, Ooh. floods, and um, other natural disasters. Disaster. Yeah, because we, when a flood comes in, and I think this was um, Pimp C in Houston, his wife, mm-hmm. like all of his like old records were in the basement, and during the flood in Houston, like mm-hmm. all of those archives were diminished. And yeah. So, really sad. So I can't even imagine like all of the information, the music and everything like that that was lost. And any of us can be affected by a climate catastrophe at any time. And so we hold on to our physical items. And I think that's really important. Um, but I do think it's time to start being realistic about digitizing certain items too. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult because, um, Older folks want to like not put their business on the internet or, yeah. <laughs> or feel comfortable with these companies and having their um, information. And so um, I know like my grandfather, he wanted to create a database of his own so that he could archive his own information. And so basically just assisting different communities. And there are a lot of different community archive projects um, that help people to make sure that that information and all of those items like don't get lost because photos get lost um, death certificates marriage certificates um wills trusts, like all of those things can be lost in a house fire they can be lost in um, a flood and those are important documents that have solidified like our legacy Mm it's really important that we don't lose those moving forward
0: yeah, I mean, I, like, I've never even known that there were like, different, I mean, I know there are different types of libraries, but to think about even just, like, medical research libraries, like, there's certain, like, niches and fields that people are experts in, because there's so much information out there, and I think you made a really good point about people making, like, these databases, because I think that, you know, especially in a time right now when people are sheltering in place, or going back to sheltering in place, because, you know, they let us out too early, um, I think it's a, I think this is like a pivotal moment that people could, you know, people are like going back to live with their families and, you know, like going home to live with their mom while this is going on. And I think this is a unique opportunity for people to also kind of, like you said, digitize some of their family history. Do you have any kind of like steps for where they could begin or where they can start, you know, like, you know, what would you tell someone who's like, okay, I want to digitize my family history. What do I do first?
1: So the first thing, like I would, um recommend is to like create like maybe a spreadsheet of some short some sort and then like come up with like what are the things that you think are important to keep about this item mm-hmm. so you want to come up with a name for the item maybe put in a date that you digitized it and then a few words that could describe that item and then um, you can scan it so even our cell phones have um different tiny, scan. <laughs> yeah, tiny <laughs> scan you know any of those um i would recommend going through and scanning those and then making sure that you're saving it in a place um, or two or more that are not on a cloud-based storage system. Mm. And so once you scan it, yes, it's now in your iCloud, but then you want to transfer it to either like a hard drive or an SD card, a thumb drive of some sort so that you have it in multiple places. Um, I keep seeing people like losing their data on their phone or losing their data in their email. And so um, while you have it, In a cloud storage, I think that's a great place to make it accessible for multiple members of your family members. Like if you want to share it with your cousins and things like that, I think that that's a great place to organize it. And then I would recommend transferring it to an SD card or um, a hard drive or thumb drive.
0: Yeah, I'm all about backing everything up. I've lost too many things in my life. (laughs) It's sad.
1: (laughs) It really is. The
0: memory that is attached to
1: that is really important. And, you know, I think we, we say, oh, oh, sad, and, like, you try to get over it, but it's, like, it can be really traumatizing, you know, mm-hmm. there's memory that is attached to images, there's memory that is attached to documentation, so we want to make sure that we preserve that, especially for future generations, because, mm-hmm. um, like, we are now looking for ourselves in the archives now that new information is available, and so we know that, like, our children and our grandchildren will be looking, too, and there's no telling, like, the, um, what they'll be able to get from it, how they'll be able to, like, interpret the information that we leave behind so it's super important that we take the steps to make sure that they can.
0: Yeah and I think it kind of also speaks to what you were saying earlier about like making you know um was it meta activist like you know this Metadata. is data. Also- metadata data activists like this is also like a, a form of that by kind of digitizing your own history You're making sure that another story of a person of color or, you know, is being included in history You know, because I think like you were saying like especially older folks can be very apprehensive About putting their information online, but on the, on the flip side of it. It's also making sure that you your story is a part of history and that your family story is a part of history. So I think that's like a really good way of looking at it.
1: Yeah, and I, even some people, um, they might not feel comfortable with this. I know that there are a lot of p- families that have been reached out to by different universities or museums and they have asked you know, for them to donate some of their items. But I do think that it is important that um, maybe we donate a copy or mm-hmm. we donate some of the items that we know that we won't be able to care for physically. Um, yeah to professionals so that we are included in the history. But I understand the fear mm-hmm. of families wanting to do that because they have historically misrepresented our archives. So Exactly,
0: yeah, definitely. I definitely understand that. Yeah, but I think that's a good alternative being like, I'll give you a copy instead of like the originals and stuff like that. Um, I actually found myself right before COVID-19 hit, I was in New York and I was at my grandma's house like taking pictures of her wedding album. And now that we are talking about backing up things, I'm going to make sure I do that after this conversation. Yes, you do not want to lose that. (laughs) I need to put it on an external hard drive, an SD card. I got it. I got it. (laughs) So what do you think? I think we're talking about the digital space, which I think is great. What do you think is the future of libraries? Because there's so much going on. I think, like you said, um, you mentioned before, I think libraries are also kind of like, you know, a social place especially for people, you know, when you're talking about social worker libraries who are helping people who may be homeless with resources. So now that it's like, I feel like it's transcending libraries are transcending to not only a physical space, but digital and also with COVID-19, what do you think are some of the futures of libraries or some creative ways that like libraries can evolve to reflect the time and the current climate? I think that now is a really interesting
1: time as people are asking for their legislator to divest um, and defund their police departments that Mm -hmm. people ask for some of that. that, And I've seen some states and cities ask for that money specifically to be allocated to libraries. But I think it's really important that all of us making sure that when we're sitting in on these city council meetings that the um, investments that were going to police forces are going to library services And I think that um, the future will definitely depend not only on the funding, but on the resources that libraries provide and the um, advocacy that libraries do to make sure that they are seen as a place that people can find these resources. Um, And then I think for the future of digital libraries, I think that they are becoming more apparent. I think people are becoming more aware of digital libraries, especially after COVID-19, becoming more aware of what their libraries can do for them digitally. People are becoming aware that like you can reach out to your librarian online. Um like public libraries have a ask a librarian space. And like we're really there. Like I'm really on the other end. Like a high <laughs> person, it's not just a, you know. A bot. <laughs> yeah, it's not a bot. It's not, you know, it's really me. I'm actually doing some research and trying to make sure that you have the right sources um that you need for your um whatever it is that you need. And So I think that people are becoming more aware. And I also think that certain institutions are becoming aware of the need to have their own digital libraries. And I've seen this role called um, a content manager. And Mm -hmm. so I think people can, um, people who are doing content management work can look to librarians and can look to what libraries have done to ensure that their digital library is up to date and that it has the correct organizational structures put in place. Because as institutions begin to do more of their work online, it will need to be organized in a
0: way to where they can refer back to it. Yeah. And I think like you just reminded me that actually before I started this podcast, I did email, I did ask a librarian at the LA Public Library <laughs> and they really gave me some resources for like one of my topics and I probably should follow up and do some more stuff, but they are there and they send you really long emails with a really good links. To stuff I promise you I did use it and I was like oh this is real <laughs> and like I it mean lo- it looks like
1: digitized it looks like it's just a google search but it's not and it, we, we need you to use it so that we can keep getting funding to keep it in place so yeah if you're feeling like a google search not giving what you need go to the public library ask for library service.
0: and I love how libraries have also evolved to kind of provide like you know I know like the library has um some like Skillshare stuff like they have like they're also allowing you to learn skills that like they would probably like I guess back in the day sometimes they would offer as like you know you come into the library you learn something but now they're also digitizing some of the resources and I think now that people are sheltering in place they're really taking advantage of and understanding that their libraries are more than just a place that you literally have to physically check out books. Like, you know, they allow you to do, I did like a research project on like my family, genealogy. I don't remember the website, but you can like go in and they have like a free login for you if you have a public library um, card. So I think that people are kind of, you know, COVID-19 is also opening people's eyes beyond like the traditional, um, old school I don't know if that's the right way um sense of the library you know because it has evolved and there's so many things that you can do for free through the library.
1: (laughs) It's a public service that I think people need to use more and I think the more we use it the more um, people will be aware of all of the service and then we can increase the amount of services that we give to people so yeah
0: well what what do you think about like because i feel like now everything is like everything's becoming digital even and even like books you know are coming like i think printing may be going it's not like going backwards to like not have but i don't think people are printing as much because you can like read online or you can listen to audibles what do you think the physical books of like what do you think about the future of the physical books in libraries do you think that there will be will they still be there do you think they'll change they will still be there
1: because readers still want the physical libraries but i do i don't think that we'll have as many copies or have as many items Mm -hmm. Um, so there might be like one copy of the book but you can access the book you know digitally and i also recently learned that most authors actually get more money if we read and buy the digital version and the audiobook version than if we buy the print version based on their contracts. so that's something to keep in mind too
0: oh wow i'm all like i love physical books and now i'm like okay maybe i can help somebody get some more money in their pocket
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have to feel the guilt i think sometimes for me i will feel the guilt like oh it's not the real book but you know yeah.
0: I think also for me, it's just like an opportunity to rest my eyes from a screen, you know, especially now that we're all working from home and everything. I just feel like I'm just always on screen, computer screen, phone screen, like whatever. And sometimes I'm just like, I need a break. So that's I think real. that's why I do the physical books too, you know, that's but real. it's good to know they make more money from the digital books. Like maybe I could double up or something to support. <laughs> um what are some of your well can you talk a little bit about we kind of skipped over this but like how did you figure out that you wanted to do like climate change librarian kind of work archivist kind of work like how did you go onto that path because that's like very unique and interesting
1: yeah that's a good question I think um when I was in like certain library classes I think that I started to come up with like a question in my mind like, okay, this does not come without effects. So, digitizing items and digitizing our library resources, there will be effects. And I think that's when I started to research what some of those effects were. And some of the effects are um, emissions. And so, data storehouses do produce emissions. And so, just making sure that one, we are losing items due to climate catastrophes. Mm-hmm. And then two, there are still side effects to us digitizing our items. And I think for me, it's like I don't want communities of color and Black communities to lose out on the advantages that come with digitizing our Um, personal archives and come with digitizing the resources that we lose because historically we have not even had access to marriage certificates like we have not Mm -hmm. had access to birth certificates and so we need to make sure that we are preserving those items however There are effects to preserving items digitally. So data storehouses do produce 2% of the emissions um, that we see. And there are a lot of organizations like Google um, has a commitment to be non-emissions. And so I'll be keeping my eye on that to see, you know, if they do reduce emissions and maybe the Google Drive and the Google, um, google cloud storage might be the best option because they have the least amount of emissions Mm -hmm. um but and then sending emails i think this is something you and i talked about like sending emails produces like yearly four percent of the emissions which is the same amount of emissions as airline industry and like people are always talking about like you know the airline industry and no, these are the people that are doing. I'm like, no, all of us are contributing. We're all a part of these email listservs and are getting unnecessary, unwanted emails in our inbox and sending unnecessary emails. The Zoom calls that we participate in, you know, sometimes some of these produce emissions. And so it's just being mindful and intentional about um, archiving with care and making sure that we're choosing the best option. Um, not only for us now, but for future generations, and so, yeah, so so it's
0: complicated, because, yeah, the double-edged sword. Yes, (laughs) yes. yes. I thought it was interesting you said um, digitizing with care, because I think, like, you know, we've already touched on this a little bit, but, like, COVID-19, and then the social justice movement that's going on, what do you think are some, like, how does libraries and librarians can contribute to like the things that are happening during this time? I know like you talked we talked about the medical libraries contributing to research and vaccination but do you think there's anything else um, that librarians can do or libraries what role they play during this historical moment?
1: Yeah I think there are a lot of things that librarians can do right now. One has been making sure that they are in contact with publishers and other organizations that uh, people want to have access to. So there are certain books that are available right now that um, they, they're unlimited downloads. So as many people who want to access books that want to access them can access them. And so I think that librarians working in um, conjunction with publishing houses can make sure that there's equitable access. But you know, publishing houses, they have to make their money and people mm-hmm. can make their income. And so I think that those partnerships that have evolved during COVID-19 should look for ways to continue post-COVID-19. which Whatever that is, we don't know when that will be. Mm -hmm. Also, um, a couple of years ago, 2016, there was a call at the American Library Association Conference for there to be the archives for the Movement for Black Lives or the Archives for Black Lives. Mm. And so, I think that um, archivists and librarians right now should be intentionally Promoting resources that we have combed through that accurately depict how to be a co-conspirator ally um, to make sure that we have um, resources available for people who are looking for ways to use their skill sets to contribute to the movement for Black Lives. And I think that librarians can highlight those for people and make those more available for people and also archive what people are already doing. Mm -hmm. And then with care, making sure that it's accurate depictions. These are not looters. Mm -hmm. These are not rioters. These are people who are trying to gain control of their community that they live in and trying to access the things that are already available in their community. These are people who are not being paid equitably and need the resources, um, that are available. So making sure that all of that documentation is accurate when it is in the library.
0: Let's see. So I have, I guess it's like my second to last question here. Um, what are some resources for people that are interested in learning more about libraries or cool archivist projects? I know you mentioned like archives for black lives which i think is great and i know there are are also some like archives for black women um do you have one that you one or two that you like that you would recommend people kind of like checking out
1: yeah i would definitely i think i would highlight that people check out whatever is in their community so i would always recommend going to your own public library and Mm -hmm. seeing what resources are available because i don't think people know like you can check out a camera you can check out a voice recorder you can check out the tools that you actually need to archive and then you can work
0: with people who work in your community library for the last my signature question that i always ask everybody is if you had got an opportunity to write a chapter in a textbook on you know your topic of expertise library librarians what would your chapter be called and why um i
1: would call it if i had to do a chapter on librarian. i would say how black librarians have changed libraries in have changed libraries
0: mm, period, period.
1: <laughs> Um, and then I would draw on the work of Dr. Ayusha Johnson Jones. Uh, I would draw on the work of Dr. Sophia Noble. Um, Dr. Ayusha Johnson Jones, she, her book is called "The African American Struggle for Library Equality," and she talks about how there are co-conspirators and people who um, worked in philanthropy that helped to preserve black libraries and black stories. And then Dr. Sophia Noble talks about so her book is "Algorithms of Oppression." And she talks about how the search engines have um, biases of the creators and like search engines are not neutral. Yeah. I don't think people make the connection between librarians and like digital spaces and like those things. And so I think like, I want to make that more apparent, like the library is the original search engine. And so when you are looking to Google and when you are looking to these spaces, like you are, that's. Well, first of all, Google is an advertisement agency. It's not necessarily a search engine mm-hmm. itself. Um, so you have to just keep all of those things in mind when you are searching for it. And that should not be the um, like the hierarchical source that you... Yes.
0: Find. Well, I think it's a beautiful way to like end this is that libraries are the original search engine. That's like my favorite quote of this. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so where can people like find you or learn more about you. She has. I can be found at Jahan,
1: J-E-H-A-N, made it um, on all social media. Um, you can also find some past work that I've done on GSC.LA. Uh, my husband is a uh, program develop- program designer, uh, product designer for a social media app. And so our work aligns now in that we're, Black people in the digital space need to have sp- safe spaces and so, some of our past work that we've done together is there at gsc.la. And you can also find me at Jahan Giles, um, G I L E S dot com. And I'm going to update that with some more of my projects. Yes.
0: And I will include all her information in the show notes. So you'll be able to like click it and check her out. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you I for having have me. learned so much (laughs) yeah i'm happy thank you so much for having me and that is the conclusion of episode six on the history of libraries with our special guest Jahan, giles librarian doula archivist all of that thank you so much for tuning in to episode six if you enjoyed and learned anything from this episode you know, leave a review if you haven't already. Um, And remember to go to our website that wasn't in our textbook.com to check any show notes and get all of Johan's social media handles. Um, And if you haven't already, make sure you're following us all over the interwebs, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. We even have a Pinterest. Make sure you come back on Friday, September 11th for our next episode. Thank you again for listening. And remember, knowledge is power.